Good morning. Um, Jennifer and I are going to be spending the week with you. Uh, we're going to be at kids camp on Wednesday and we're just excited to be here. We were here last January, I believe. Anyway, we were here recent, recently, met uh, several of you, so we've got some old friends and we're looking forward to some new friends after our week here together. Uh, Brian had asked me just to talk a little bit about the work in Ethiopia, a little bit about ourselves, and so today I really want to talk more about why we're there and a little bit about ourselves, and maybe as you hear our story, it can maybe touch uh, your hearts as well. One of the more profound texts in my relationship with Jesus is found in the book of Revelation in chapter 3. John's writing to a church there that was planted in the city called Laodicea. And we're going to be concentrating especially on verses 15 through 20. It says, I know what you have done. I know that you're neither cold nor hot. How I wish that you either one or the other, but because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. You say I'm rich and well off, I have all that I need. <clears throat> but you don't know that how miserable and pitiful you are. You're poor, you're blind, you're naked. I advise you then to buy gold from me, pure gold, in order to be rich, but also buy white clothing to dress yourselves and to cover up your shameful nakedness. Also buy ointment to put on your eyes so that you can see. I rebuke and punish all whom I love. Be in earnest then and turn away from your sins. I rebuke, or listen, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hear my voice and open the door, I will come into their house and eat with them, and they will eat with me. I really found it interesting to look at the historical context of this passage because it really helps bring the passage to life, at least for me it did. At the time of this writing, Laodicea would be the rough equivalent of today, um, New York, Dubai, London, one of the bigger and richer cities in the world. At its time, Laodicea was the richest city in the world. So rich, in fact, that when there was an earthquake that nearly destroyed it, they... Um, refused government help, they rebuilt the entire city with their own funds. That'd be like Joplin, Missouri, or New Orleans after Katrina, just saying no to government funding and just doing it all themselves. So the Laodiceans were so rich that they were pretty smug and self-satisfied with their lives. They were known worldwide for their medical school, and they had this ointment that they had created that cured eye diseases John refers to this in his passage as well. But in spite of their wealth, they still didn't have enough water to, for all of their people, and so they had to get their water from a um, viaduct. So they pumped hot water from a hot springs via a viaduct six miles away. So this hot water, by the time it got to the city, was lukewarm and nearly undrinkable. So as you read through this passage, there's a very specific set of buttons that John is pushing. He's referring to pure gold, not the worldly gold. He's referring to white clothing in contrast to the very expensive black cloth that the Laodiceans exported worldwide. In every sentence, in every example, in every analogy in this text, John is saying, you think you have it all together, but you really don't. Let's just say that Laodicea is not really what God was looking for in the church. So what's this have to do with Ted or Jennifer or Ethiopia or Centerpoint Church? Well, let's find out. It was this passage that helped propel me to rethink who I was as a Christian and ultimately took us to Ethiopia, and perhaps there might be an insight or two 
for you guys as well. So I went to college. I was uncertain of what I wanted to do with my life. Um, I'd gone to a Christian college, and after the first couple of years of just taking classes, not knowing where I wanted to go, I felt God was calling me to become a pastor. And so that's the path I initially chose, and I pursued a theology degree and went to seminary. During my third year in college, there was an opportunity to do an internship in um, Southside Chicago. Not sure about the wisdom of taking 10 teenagers from the Pacific Northwest to work in the south side of Chicago, but for me it was an eye-opener. It was um, awesome to be able to work with broken and hurting people. And it was there that I think Jennifer and I got our initial passion for missions. And I say Jennifer and I because that's actually where I met her. We met in Chicago during this, doing this internship. And don't let the picture fool you. Back then I had hair and I've gained a few pounds since then. Um, but it felt good to serve God that summer. And it put on my heart a passion for missions. But I turned my back on God. I turned my back on what he had called me to do. So even though I had finished my theology degree, I decided I didn't want to be a pastor. I had to have a backup plan. I had also taken pre-med requirements and decided, well, let's go to medical school because we can get rich and have an easier life. But after a year of doing that, I found out that was not for me. I hated it. I hated the idea. I was there for the wrong reasons. It was wrong for me. And so after a year, I decided to drop out of medical school as well. My father was a businessman, and that's what I knew, and so I decided to go into the business world, and that's essentially where I remained. I worked as a banker and in the mortgage industry until we left for Ethiopia. So as promotions came around on the jobs, we moved around a fair amount. We had two incredible daughters. In fact, the reason we are still here and not back in Ethiopia is we're staying on a couple of months so that we can go to our older daughter's wedding, the one on the the one not in white. Is it on the right? Yeah, that's Annalise. Um, we were just caught up in being the all-American typical family. Two kids, two cars, stay-at-home mom, accumulating stuff and pretending to be Christians. For me, as a good practical American businessman, I thought it was essential to have a good plan, a good short-term plan, a long-term plan, and I would live my life according to my plan. I figured I could do my life the way I wanted, then when I got into trouble, I could run to God and he would help me and fix my problems. I also had a somewhat schizophrenic view of God and what a relationship with him was really like. I was a theologian after all, so I understood intellectually all about God and his love and forgiveness, but I also didn't want him too close to me. You know, just in case he got in the way of the things that I wanted to do. So I could work in the secular world during the week and act like a secular person and then on the weekends go to church. We cleaned up pretty good on the outside but it really masked the brokenness on the inside of us. I would teach a Sunday school class. Eventually Jennifer and I served on church boards in the various capacities in the church. In other words, to look at us from the outside you would say we were good perfect Christians. But on the inside it was a different story. As the passage for today implies, God either wants all of us or he wants none of us. And he's pretty graphic about it as well. If you actually translate the passage into to today's English, he says, I wish you were hot or cold, but because you're neither, I will violently vomit you out of my mouth. 
Or in other words, God is saying, you make me sick. God truly would prefer that we reject him and walk away rather than pretend to be in love with him, rather than pretending to be Christians. And that's a central message over and over and over again throughout the Bible. All God wants is our hearts. For instance, Micah 6.8. He's shown you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? To act righteously, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. Or Hosea 6.6. I don't want your sacrifices. I want your love. I don't want your offerings. I want you to know me. Or Matthew 7.22 and 23. On Judgment Day, many will say to me, Lord, we've prophesied in your name, we've cast out demons, we've performed many miracles, and I'm going to reply, I never knew you. These passages speak of knowing God and God knowing us, but we need to be clear about what he means when he says that. The proper translation for these passages is not speaking of a superficial relationship. They're talking about the most intimate relationship it is possible for human beings to have. To know God is to have a two-way, give-and-take, back-and-forth relationship about the most intimate parts of our lives. If you really understand Hosea 6.6, it'll actually break your heart. Here's the creator of the universe, your creator, my creator, saying, I don't want your behavior, I don't want you to pretend, all I want is for you to know me and to love me, and I will love you back unconditionally. I understood all of this, and I could even explain it to you from a theological point of view, but I was too self-absorbed to have it really stick and make a significant difference in my life. And so for years, and perhaps decades, I worked hoping to make money, accumulate stuff, on the weekends go to church and do church stuff, because frankly, well, that's what a good person does, right? But my goal was not the relentless pursuit of God and a relationship with him as the most important thing in my life. And that's why God said what he said to the Laodiceans. I either want you to be hot or cold. Either have an intimate relationship with me or walk away from me. Just stop pretending. So in my life, this pretending led to a gulf between me and God. And without God, we're left to our own devices. Slowly but inevitably, I was becoming more and more demanding boss at work. And a selfish father, an inconsiderate and arrogant husband... And over time, I prayed less, and without even intending to, I just simply walked away from God. Now, keep in mind, I was still going to church, but there was not a relationship with Jesus that had any real meaning. And to me, that's the scary part. You and I can call Jesus Lord, go to church, make all the right moves, but in reality, we are not part of his kingdom unless we are passionately in love with him. As you might suspect, a life without God will ultimately fail. Selfishness was putting a divide in our marriage, and Jennifer and I, uh, our marriage began to fall apart. The search for happiness in things and accumulating stuff pushed me to partner with a dishonest businessman, who led, which led to the failure of one of my businesses. Little by little, God was allowing me to see the inevitable conclusion of a life without him. I can so relate to the prodigal son story. I was like the spoiled son who finally realized what a great dad he had, but was too ashamed to come home, but I really, really wanted to come home. In my situation, it was a loving church family, perhaps a church-like center point, 
that brought me back home to Jesus. A kind and loving pastor showed me unconditional love and forgiveness. The church body helped our marriage become restored. Over time, Jennifer and I got involved in the lives of other hurt and broken people. We had a story to tell, a story of God's love and his amazing grace and his forgiveness. And in that sharing, not only were we healed, but so were the people we shared with. God was able to use our brokenness to bring others to him and to his kingdom. Once I really saw God through the compassion and love of real Christians at church, I was able, like the prodigal son, to come back to Jesus. And just like the prodigal son, I found that God was already there running toward me. With unconditional love and forgiveness, he embraced me, he restored me, treated me as though I had never left. I promised God I would never leave him, and he promised he would never leave me. I asked him what he wanted me to do with my life, and he quite clearly answered that question as well. My life had always been about control, controlling my circumstances, controlling my finances, controlling, controlling, controlling. I always had to have security and a backup plan, and God knew I needed to learn to let go and just let him take charge of my life. I had seen the goodness of God, and I was finally willing to follow him wherever he asked me to go. So Jennifer and I, on one of the scarier days in my life, quit our jobs, sold our belongings, and promised God that we would work for him for the rest of our lives, sharing his amazing love with the people of Ethiopia. For the next couple of years, we worked to raise the support needed to do the work that God had called us to do, and about four or five years ago, we moved to Ethiopia. Ethiopia is the fourth poorest country in the world. There's nearly 100 different tribes or people groups, and about 25% of these people, or about 14 million of them, have never heard of Jesus before. Ethiopia also has rampant problems with sex trafficking, and so God has been able to use Jennifer, Jennifer and I, in our brokenness and in our weakness, to come alongside hurt and broken Ethiopians and to show them his love. We've been able to tell them the story of what God has done for us and what he can do for them as well. Daily, Jennifer is able to work alongside the prostitutes and the broken women at risk in Ethiopia. Working with our Ethiopian friends and partners, she's working to help these precious girls go from brokenness to hope and healing. She's working to help them develop life skills and to help them get training and jobs and to once again become proud and productive members of society and young women who know who they are in Christ. God's been so good, and we're happy to see so many of these girls turning from a life of degradation to become daughters of the Most High God. I too have been overwhelmed by the goodness of God. We've been able to start a skills training school in the slums and nearly 70 people have gone from begging and homelessness and hopelessness to a new life in Christ and to new jobs and new businesses. They've been able to see who they are in Christ, and their lives have never been the same. Girls like Mechadus, who was homeless and pregnant and an orphan, and is now a proud business owner and a happy and smiling Christian. And God continues to find ways to reach the unreached through the broken lives of people like you and me. 
In 2013, Jennifer and I were traveling to the southwest part of the country, about three days' drive from our home in Addis Ababa. We were discouraged and really questioning why we were there. We had gotten up at 4.30 to take a walk since the heat was so unbearable we couldn't sleep. We came back from our walk to pack the car and go home, and frankly, I was just ready to leave Ethiopia altogether. As I was packing the car, I was approached by an Ethiopian. He asked if I was a Christian, and I said, yes, why do you ask? <clears throat> he said that God had come to him in a dream and told him that if he would come to this place at this time, that he would meet somebody who would help him spread the gospel. So keep in mind, it took this man two days to get there to meet me. So before he had, he had already started the path of following, Je he had already started down the path of following Jesus before I ever knew he existed or ever met him. His name is Lowiton. He's a nurse um, by training, but he had been reading his Bible and knew God was calling him to evangelize and to tell others about God. Over the next um, five to seven months, Lowton and I talked. We got to know each other. I brought him to the capital city, to our house, and to some meetings to meet with other Ethiopians for additional training to make long-term plans. We agreed that I would teach him theology, teach him how to plant churches, teach him the Bible, and show him how to teach others. And so two years ago, we started the Christian Church of Ethiopia. Lowton has brought along five additional evangelists that are receiving full-time training, and underneath those five, we now have 45 young men who are at various stages in the process of learning how to share Jesus with others. This particular area of Ethiopia is unique. Within about three to four days' walk of Lowton, there are about 960,000 unreached peoples from 14 different people groups. Each have their own customs, their own language, None of these people have been reached, and none of them have a Bible in their own language, and likely they never will, or at least not in my lifetime. So the only way they're going to hear of God is to have an evangelist living with them, working with them, and essentially becoming Jesus' hands and feet to them. And so we are now working with evangelists, uh, working with six of these 14 unreached people groups, and we have plans to send evangelists to the other unreached people groups in the next four years. Working with Lowton, we planted 14 churches before I had had a chance to come back to America a few months ago, but Lowton hasn't stopped. While I've been gone, he's planted an additional five or six churches. And as of the beginning of this month, over 2,000 people have come to Christ. They've been baptized in parts of Ethiopia where his name has not been heard for centuries. Which brings me back to where we started. What was God's central message to the Laodiceans, and what is God's central message to you and me? Stop being self-satisfied. Stop being complacent. Stop just pretending to be a Christian. Stop playing church. Stop pretending Jesus matters, unless he really does, and it shows in your life every day. Start seeing your need for Jesus again. Start reaching out to the hurt and broken people right here in Centerpoint Church and right here in Lexington. Start reaching out across the world to take Jesus' love to places that's never been heard before. I do love how this passage ends. 
Jesus rebukes the Laodiceans, and if we're not in a right relationship with him, he rebukes us too. But notice how the passage ends. So what does God say in verse 19? He says, if I'm rebuking you, it's because I love you and I want you to come home. And the best part of the passage is in verse 20. God is always standing at the door to our lives and knocking and is ready to come in if we will let him. He says he will come in and eat with us, but it's not about food. It's about becoming family, becoming friends, becoming whole again, and working side by side with him for his glory and his kingdom. He will restore our brokenness and then use that brokenness in us to help others who need it. Jesus is knocking right now. He either wants all of you or none of you. All you need to do is say yes, and in exchange, you can get a life, you can replace a life of emptiness and shame for a life of purpose and joy. Jennifer and I can tell you from our own personal experience that God will always, always go above and beyond to do more than you thought was possible or you could even dream or imagine. So I'd just like to close in thanksgiving to this awesome God who has loved us so much. Will you bow your heads with me? Father God, we know we don't deserve your goodness, but we accept it. We love you for it. We give our lives wholeheartedly to you and ask that you will just simply work through us to show others your love uh, today and tomorrow and all the days to come. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.